0: So I think conceptually that is at the core of why artists are so excited about crypto It's having more flexibility to create more diverse models or other work.
1: Behind every favorite artist, song or lyric is a story you've never heard. In voices behind the music, we go much deeper than the front man you hear on the album or the guitarist you see on stage. People from all aspects of the music industry work together to make the business what it is, and are often some of the busiest, but nicest, funniest, and smartest people out there. I'm Jeff Yasuda, CEO at Feed Media Group, the creators behind the leading B2B music licensing platform. Join me as I sit down with some of my favorite voices behind the music to hear their insider stories about what makes the music industry so exciting. Today I'm here with the amazing Sherry Hu, award-winning journalist, educator, and thought leader at the intersection of music and technology. The Harvard grad Brainiac was a writer for Forbes and later wrote for Billboard and Music Business Worldwide, but has also written for countless publications, including NPR Variety, Music Ally, and many more. She is an adjunct professor at the Clive Davis Institute of Recorded Music at NYU, and is the founder and publisher of the critically acclaimed newsletter and community, Water and Music. Sherry is also an accomplished pianist, having also studied at Juilliard, and is always at the cutting edge of where the music industry is going. And on that note, I initially met Sherry years ago when she was a writer at Forbes, discussing fitness as the next distribution vehicle for the music industry, which he predicted way back in 2018. Case and point, Peloton is now the seventh largest revenue driver for labels and publishers after streaming giants like Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, and Amazon Music. Sherry, welcome to Voices Behind the Music.
0: Thank you. Thanks so much for having me.
1: So a little birdie has told me that you are doing something now with a group called Seed Club, and tell me what you're working on.
0: Yeah, for sure. So my main thing that I work on right now full-time is my own newsletter, Water and Music. And as of just a month ago, I am also part of a new accelerator called Seed Club, which helps communities build their own social tokens. And it's expanding into not just social tokens, but helping them navigate NFTs, like how to integrate NFT drops into their community strategy. And Water Music already has a very active community. We have a Discord server that's active on a daily basis where people are already going to you know, discuss the latest news, help each other find the next job opportunity in music and tech or the next creative project to work on. So there's already a lot of this community-driven, collective you know, learning, collaboration ethos that I've been very intentional about trying to promote from the very beginning. So at least to me, creating some tokenized on-chain way to track those contributions and to reward the most, you know, active standout members, it seems like a natural next step.
1: And what is an NFT and why is it good for artists and why is it good for fans?
0: So NFT stands for non-fungible token. I personally would like to see it have like a more user-friendly name. Because if you say NFT or non fungible token, it doesn't really resonate with the average person, I don't think. But the way I guess that it works is that so unlike, say, a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin or Ether. That is fungible in that if you and I each have one Bitcoin, we can interchange it and it has the exact same function, just like you know, any fiat currency, like the US dollar. An NFT is non-fungible, meaning it is, you know, verifiably scarce. You can't break it down into multiple pieces, you can't, you know, like mutually interchange it with another token. To use an analogy that might resonate with people in the music industry, and I think unsurprisingly, one of the most common applications for NFTs in the industry is like a digital piece of merch. Like if you think about a piece of merch that you would get from like an in-person tour, for example, it has some level of scarcity, especially if it was like limited edition. The term digital collectible is like caught on for this reason. So yeah. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I guess to sum it up, it's a kind of token that has verifiable scarcity and you can verify that on using blockchain. You know, It's kind of the underlying rails of crypto it's a decentralized ledger that you know multiple people network can access so why is this valuable for artists and fans there are a lot of different reasons one if you think about the economics of streaming and why it does not work for most artists arguably in terms of making like a sustainable living is because you know once you distribute your music onto say spotify or apple music you are automatically put into a system that incentivizes and only rewards scale also ubiquity, which is the opposite of scarcity. Like the only way that you can earn a sustainable living from music streams is if you get millions of streams per month, which requires having global presence, reaching larger audiences. I feel like that is very often, understandably so, the success metric for the mainstream music industry is like scale and more scale in both streaming and social media. Obviously, if you are... Like a niche artist. I wouldn't even call these like niche genres, but say you're like a classical or jazz artist and like your catalog might not be getting that many streams on Spotify. Or if you're only paid out a royalty for a song after 30 seconds, but your classical music piece is 10 minutes, you know, you're not rewarded for additional like listening time. So I think a lot of artists do face this pressure or this perception of a lack of choice. Like in participating in this industry, I have to funnel my whole career into this one dominant model that might not serve my community or my needs. And so what I think is really interesting about crypto in general, with NFTs being a subset of this, is that you can almost code your own economics around your creative work into your token. It's like much easier and much more immediate to set up more decentralized like revenue splits, for example. And especially for artists who care about that transparency, all that information is available on chain so people can verify that the right people are getting paid which is a huge issue in the industry. The notion of scarcity, which understandably people have mixed feelings about, but there are some artists for whom that notion of scarcity does resonate really well with their fans. And now they can sell this one-of-one, like, you know, single version token connected to the song. And a diehard super fan can now, if they want to, pay like $10,000 for it. Whereas how would you express that fandom on Spotify? Streaming the song more and like incrementally contributing like three more cents, like there isn't as much, I guess, flexibility to showcase and then on the artist side monetize that range of fandom. So I think conceptually, that is at the core of why artists are so excited about crypto. It's like having more flexibility to create more diverse models or other work as opposed to feeling like they only have to be funneled into the dominant streaming or social economy.
1: Perfect. That was an awesome description, by the way. And it's actually, to me, very analogous to the age-old thesis when you are in a band. I did run a label and a management company at one point, and we learned very quickly that there are few, 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 few artists that actually make money at the time selling CDs, right? Mm -hmm. You know, that most artists, most musicians make money on the road, playing live gigs, and obviously selling merch. But now we have moved to the digital format and and where tech and particularly your knowledge at the intersection of music and tech is so powerful is that NFTs and this crypto world per se just represents another revenue stream for artists that historically and traditionally have had trouble monetizing. And I think this is even more important as the DIY movement is fully embraced. A lot of artists just don't have the capability to get signed to a label, even an indie label, right? Or even a distribution deal. And I go back to that great Brooklyn band, probably in your neighborhood, Clap Your Hands, Say Yeah, who actually pushed out their initial album themselves. They pressed it, they pushed it out. I think their first album sold 30,000 copies, which, you know, to a major label would be a massive disaster. But if you own all the rights and you're essentially making, you know, at the time, $9.99 per CD, you're actually doing pretty darn well. But it is fascinating to me, this world of NFTs. It's a perfect concept because in some ways too, to sort of Fandom isn't just about, hey, being in the background saying, oh, I love your music. I listen to it. Fandom is about, hey, I want to show off and brag to my friends that I'm a super fan because I've got this very unique, you know, in this case, digital asset.
0: Yes. So I totally agree. And I think that idea resonates with a lot of fans. I also think that is one of the biggest gaps in the NFT world right now, because so th- there's a lot of discussion about the utility of NFTs. What do you use NFTs for? And if you think about merch, to your point just now, like the main utility is like not a really functional thing. It's you know it's like social status, some kind of clout. You know, I was hip to this artist or this band before you were. You know, so I- I'm part of this community was a very clear way to show it you you know wear the merch you hang it on your wall or something right now and so many people are working on this but right now say i buy an nft from my favorite artist how do i show it off mm-hmm. i can like post it on social media but that i feel like is not enough proof to Show you actually have the token maybe i can like show the transaction on whatever blockchain it was on the ethereum blockchain but it's just like a Bunch of numbers and like a really long string of characters. It's like my wallet address. Like that's not I feel like it's not as uh, interesting or like doesn't communicate what you're trying to show to people. So yeah,
1: Sherry. I've also heard about some artists using their NFTs to essentially help build community, whereby the actual value of the NFT isn't what's embedded as part of the digital asset per se, but more so around how if I now know that another person who bought this NFT is someone that I have potentially the chance to meet, this now becomes effectively a community of NFT owners. There's a scarcity and oh my gosh, I get to hang out with such and such because they too are an owner of this precious asset.
0: Yes. And not in music, but elsewhere in crypto, we're seeing this definitely like community kind of vision happened with, I, I don't know if you're familiar with CryptoPunks or Bored Ape, uh, Yacht Club, Sad Girls, I feel like there are too many of these projects out there now maybe, but but there are a lot of these like limited edition avatar projects whose only value you could argue <laughs> is that they're like colorful and just they are scarce. Like they only have value because they are scarce. so. This like one group of people minted 10,000 NFTs of images that all had a similar aesthetic. So for like CryptoPunks, it's just like a very pixelated 8-bit style avatar face. And each of those NFTs will have a specific set of traits like certain color hair. Maybe they're wearing a hat. Maybe they're wearing jewelry. And some traits are rarer than others. And that's like laid out very clearly. You know, you have like a 0.01% chance of getting this feature. Mm-hmm. And so there, I guess, two things to point out. One, you would think it's it's a very like playful, I guess, kind of experiment. There's no real utility, but there's so much value in like the CryptoPunks market and that the rarest ones easily will sell for uh six figures, like a hundred, two hundred thousand dollars each. Incredible.
1: Which is incredible. Like, <laughs> yeah. Incredible.
0: Yeah. <laughs> which for most people, I think they would look at that and be like, why like what is going on
1: <laughs> <laughs> right oh yes. my gosh wow. but
0: that also and i guess there's no way to really verify this but it's like an unspoken rule that if you own a crypto punk you have to change your twitter profile picture to your crypto punk so there's a whole wow. culture of like people changing their social avatars or pfp is like an acronym that comes up a lot like changing your pfp to your CryptoPunk or to whatever NFT you own in any of these other collections. So now there are like so many spin-offs of CryptoPunks, different avatar versions of these apes for Bored Ape. There's a penguin one. There's like a sad girl themed one that I actually like I really like in terms of the aesthetic. It's like all black and white. Yeah. And so it's it's like a fun way to show like it's like
1: crypto etiquette.
0: Yeah. Completely. (laughs)
1: Let's maybe segue a little bit into this concept of the metaverse and some of the things that like Roblox is doing, and even some of the the initial concerts that took place on Fortnite. Do you have a view on that virtual experience?
0: For sure. Okay, my semi-hot take on this is that for the most part, I think actually with the exception of Second Life, the concept of an in-game concert does not exist. And we've used the term in-game concert to describe things like Fortnite shows that I actually think are interactive music videos. If you think about, okay, Travis Scott's Fortnite show from last April, which I feel like has set the tone for how so many people are thinking about this topic. Travis was not actually performing live the whole thing was premeditated he was not there interacting off of the energy of the audience everything yeah was done ahead of time they spent like over six months millions of dollars you know making it but it was immersive and interactive i experienced it as like a fan slash consumer as an immersive look at the world that he built around like astral world specifically this album that he put out it was like an extension of like the album cover almost and then thinking about um Roblox and Lil Nas X. I think he was one of their first big in-game concerts, quote-unquote, except that was also all pre-recorded. There was no actual interaction with the artist. Like, as a fan, I guess you could, like, react in real time or chat in real time, but it was actually quite limited. So you you show up at a certain time for the premiere of a premeditated, like, visual experience. Okay. Whereas with Second Life, obviously the tech was not as good. So I've like read a lot of stuff about how you could only have like max 20 people in a venue or something before like the servers would just blow up and then, you know, you couldn't let anyone else in or like, obviously the avatars were not as good quality and were like super clunky. But the vibe I got from, like, seeing old Second Life videos is actually kind of similar to seeing performing artists or cover artists on Twitch. They were actually performing live. The audio was live. They set up all their tech to do that. And they were interacting and getting feedback from the audience in real time, even though it was, like, through these avatars. And, like, that sense of real-time intimacy and, like, this experience that literally will not happen again because it's being created in real time, I think was really magical. And... It's so crazy that idea feels forward thinking because a lot of the like in-game music experiences are actually not, they're not interactive in the same sense of the artist being present. It's like a movie. It's like a music video that happens to be more immersive.
1: Yeah. And, you know, so you would, to summarize, so you wouldn't call it inauthentic, but you just have to make sure that as the fan, it's clear, hey, I'm showing up and checking this out for the first time but it's like a music video yes
0: and you can there there definitely is like a longer semantic debate about what is a concert (laughs) like that's a whole separate conversation but yes it's not that it's inauthentic if it's not live but making the value proposition to the fan clear and like setting clear expectations is important
1: i'm gonna put you on the spot again but do you have a new prediction around where the music industry is going
0: yeah. Okay. In fitness now, I was thinking about this earlier. So you have like the Pelotons of the world that are doing these very high profile curation partnerships with the likes of Beyonce or they'll you know, invite major recording and performing artists or they'll feature them in like their Peloton Music Festival, I think happened early this year, right? Like a whole weekend of just curated music programming. And that seems to me like a relatively more standard, you know, artist's partnership kind of model. I'm also seeing, so I guess companies like Endel would fall in this category. I feel like Apple out of all the big tech companies is like best poised to go in the direction of more like generative music. So I guess also this expands from just like physical fitness and like working out to like health in general. I'm seeing a ton of different apps for like generative music making that has serves a much more functional purpose to the point where the artist almost doesn't matter. It's like listening to on YouTube, there are all these like lo-fi hip hop playlists, like 24 seven lo-fi hip hop beats to study to or whatever. Usually you listen to that and like, you don't pay attention to who the, who the artist is. You listen to that to get in the right headspace and just like have it as like wallpaper essentially.
1: Well, you don't wanna get distracted. Yes, right?
0: exactly. You don't wanna be distracted. Whereas like, like a Beyonce class for like Peloton, you are focused solely on the class. And this is probably why those partnerships of such high value. The music is so central to you know maintaining your focus and presence and performance ultimately in the class. And so my predictions in terms of like the next couple of years kind of fall into those two buckets in a weird way, like the last year and a half in particular has seen a lot more artist partnerships on like the meditation side. So. Like, John Legend was the chief music officer at Headspace and curated I all these that. playlists. Yeah.
1: Do you think that's just marketing? Or Completely, do you
0: think 100% just marketing. I'm okay. sure he is very busy with other things. <laughs> In the wake of that, Calm now, I think actually even more than Headspace is very aggressive on their, like, exclusives. So they have like artists across all genres coming in to do like like sleep remixes of their latest albums or like ambient mixes. But yeah, so that that is like a trend that I kind of reached its peak during the pandemic, but I'm still seeing continue in a lot of different ways, like artists realizing the value of creating different versions of their albums to fit different contexts depending on what mm-hmm. fans are looking for like Oh, you have a dance remix. Why not have a sleep remix? <laughs> like put it that way, you know, like fill the whole uh, spectrum of emotion, energy, and activity
1: but let me let me ask you some fun questions around kind of you. first of all, i I want to hear about your piano playing. Tell me about you, sure. you most people probably don't know you studied at Juilliard. Yes,
0: so I did their pre-college program. So every Saturday, I would go and have private lessons, chamber music lessons, music theory, ear training, they're like electives, like music history, composition. So it was like, yeah, weekend school for music, but for- I'd
1: love to do that. Yeah,
0: it was, (laughs) oh my gosh, that was my dream. And like probably what I looked forward to the most every week was like hanging out with everyone else who thought as deeply about music as I did and like having that immediate connection. Yeah, it it was just so magical, it was great.
1: Are you still playing?
0: i actually it's interesting so i only play occasionally i definitely don't practice as much as i could but i just spent the last week in la it was my first time in la since the before the pandemic so it'd been a while since i went back it was just like a work trip but something about maybe being in a new city or like being in la specifically has motivated me to play more music now. It's a very like stereotypical LA thing to say. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yes, but I'm like very motivated and inspired by that. So as of right now, I'm playing a lot more than I used to, I guess, in the last like year and a half,
1: which feels great. Fantastic, fantastic. Okay, some rapid fire questions. What was your first album?
0: Oh my gosh. I only realized this when I was trying to teach. I taught like... very cute experience, like a music journalism workshop to a bunch of really young people in my hometown. So like 10 to 12 year olds. One of the first questions that I asked in this class is like, kind of similar, like, what's your favorite music right now? So their answer to that question is how I would answer this question. It's like, at that age, your music tastes are so influenced by your parents. There's one 10 year old in the class who was like, I love Louis Armstrong. And I was like, what? Oh, wow. <laughs> you are so cultured and so sophisticated. Yeah. That is great. So my answer to this would be, unsurprisingly, listen to a lot of classical music. So there was a record of Itzhak Perlman and Yo-Yo Ma. I think it was a live album on vinyl. It might still be in my like old house, but I, that's yeah. the first album I remember.
1: What about the greatest show you've ever seen?
0: Oh, Wolfpack at Madison Square Garden. It was a one-night wow, only show. Wow, you saw that yeah, show. I was there. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: Oh my gosh. It was gosh.
0: incredible. I feel like it's it's one of the most underrated music industry case studies because they got Madison Square Garden, self-managed, oh. run their own label. They they do have an agent, which is probably yeah, how they got MSG, but like Jack Stratton, who's like the one of the main like guys of the band, he's like the de facto manager, like, runs the mm-hmm. label. So it's it's a completely bootstrapped operation.
1: Wow. But
0: they got to Madison Square Garden, and it was, like, totally full, super impressive. And th- their previous show was Broken Steel in New York, I think just the year or two before. So, like, their ascent has just been...
1: Crazy. Yeah. yeah. I've seen YouTubes of that where they had kind of that living room yes. kind of funny. Um,
0: such a good design choice. Like, even in one of the biggest venues in the world, you know, still maintaining the ethos of their videos, you know, still feels like, you're totally. home. oh, so, so
1: great. Like, yeah. irreverent. And then the last question is sort of your greatest starstruck moment.
0: So, actually, related, I have had dinner with Jack Stryan, and that was like, Huge super fan moment. And so you see, you know, Wolfpeck, the band, and of course they're, you know, you said like very irreverent and like have uh you know, have their own shticks and their own personalities. Jack also is very observant and astute about the economics of music too. I mean, he has to be to run Wolfpeck, like the band. And so he had like I don't know if he does it as much now, but he had tweeted like super frequently about why are our Spotify rates going down. Now we need more streams we can the same amount of money and like always trying to you know, unpack why the streaming economy, just like critiquing the streaming economy. So I think he and I had like connected online through those conversations. And then I was able to like have dinner with him and a bunch of other people in LA. But yeah, and it was so great also because, and maybe this is like a basic thing, but it like struck me also that he is just like a very normal person. (laughs) You know, that really struck me the difference between, you know, the persona that you project like on stage, which of course is super important to like, your brand as an artist and like how fans experience you, but then just like who you are as a person. Most people I would hope are just normal. They have normal hopes, concerns, you know, et cetera. So that, that was a very fulfilling experience to like have that more holistic view. Yeah. Super like top starstruck moment.
1: Yeah. Well, we're going to end on that note. Sherry, thank you so much for spending time with us, sharing your insights. How do people find out more about you? Just sherryhoo.com or where do you like to mm-hmm. send people?
0: You can go to my website, sherryhoo.com.
1: Spelled C-H-E-R-I-E-H-U.com. Yes,
0: thank you. And I'm also on Twitter at sherrywhoo 42 Feel free to add me, same handle I'm on, sorry, on Instagram. And I'm also on LinkedIn if you want to add me there.
1: Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the show.
0: Thank you again for having me.
1: Thanks for listening to Voices Behind the Music, a Growth Network podcast production presented by Feed Media Group. We're on a mission to make it easy, fast, and legal for businesses to use music to power the most engaging customer experiences. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you get yours and learn more about us at feedmediagroup.com.